Episode number 74. <laughs> Pull that off. <laughs> All right, you ready? I'm Lowe. And I'm Sarah Beth Hunt. You're listening to the Havana Cafe Sessions podcast. Where we get together once a week over coffee to talk about the big questions of life. Let's get into the show. Okay, there's something wrong with this picture here. Tell you, me what it is. You don't have your coffee. I do not have my coffee. So, <laughs> so I'm going to be a grump for the start of this episode <laughs> but maybe yeah maybe it's good maybe there's some lesson that i need to learn no, no 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 all right so um something that you maybe can help me out with which would be good to explore on the podcast um this week and this is about um i guess getting to the heart of what it means to have a spiritual practice for one and then but more importantly, I get, or I don't know if it's more importantly, but why do we, I suppose, as humans, seek out this need to have some kind of spiritual practice? Because I go up and down with this, as in sometimes I'm really into a spiritual practice of some sort, and then other times it's just like completely out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a big c- cyclical thing with me. Yeah. Okay. So what's the driver? Am I supposed to know that? Yeah. What drives oh, okay. you to do what it is that you do oh, with the sort of um, Buddhism thing? I know. So what, I, I can if talk I take about it from what drives place, me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, th- I think that I sort of subscribe to that thought that we or I have a sense of the sacred or um, underlying something to life. So for me, it's about accessing that more often rather than getting caught up in all the mundane crap. Accessing what? Accessing? Well, you know, so so one of the things that was really good in the way that um, it was articulated, hey, coffee, yay. Awesome. Um, you know, I went one, uh, a couple years ago, I went to a, um, sweat lodge right. that's, uh, held, um, and it was through the Lakota tradition of, um, Native American sort of philosophy stuff. And they recognize the different directions, but one of the things that they recognize is, so they have all these different elements, like, you know, the East being, um, the maiden being kind of the beginning of things, the new sunrise, you know, all this kind of stuff. And you can sort of go around and then there's a direction up and then there's a direction down. So there's a direction up to probably, um, I I, I can't remember what it all is. But anyway, the, the last recognition that you have is to the mystery and all of the things that are unknown. And I felt that that was a really good articulation of the fact that there is something that we can know without being able to express it. And that's, I think, what, why, what compels us, I guess, to, to find a spiritual practice that works for us. Because I do feel that there is something in us that is called to that realm. And there's something in us that recognizes and you can call it a sacredness, or you can call it um, God, or you can call it uh, mystery, or you can call it whatever it is you want to call it. Um, 
but I think we're all sort of talking about the same things, you know. Right. So I guess it's a, sort of about reconnecting with that thing, which is, I believe, sort of part of who we are as well and sort of part of our own life force and where we come from and what animates us. So like the, the Tao is unknowable when you read the, I guess it's the very, either the first or the second. Um, it's unknowable in a, in a brain way. Do you know what I mean? Like we can't know these things. That's why they're so hard to articulate, which mm. is what I loved about your question about what, whether spiritual practice and religion is like a metaphor for something else. But some people get stuck in the metaphor. This is where I have, I guess I have yeah, a hard yeah, time yeah. sometimes no is people get stuck in the metaphor, forget what's, what underlies the, the draw, what's the real draw, what purpose does spirituality or religion serves, and they get stuck in the religion or the practice or the belief system yeah. such that that becomes a thing. And, I mean, and I definitely feel like I go through waves of practicing more or less in terms of meditating or doing whatever. Um, is it just to feel better about yourself or is it something that you got to reconnect with yourself? Is there so, I mean, there's so many different ways you can look at this. So, we, you know, I've got um, a book by um, Hillman, is his surname, James Hillman, is a psychologist, but he, he kind of was bringing back the whole idea of the myth and mythology and being able to use mythic imagination to deal with the various different parts of ourselves. And he articulates that we lost something when we pushed myth to just stories mm-hmm. um, that had no, yeah, that's it, they're just stories, blah. Um, and it took away our ability to deal with different parts of our psyche. So even creating the idea of, of one God mm. made us have to put everything into one entity and try and ball it up into one space. That's interesting, yeah. Whereas he's saying that we've, we, if we want to truly integrate with ourselves and be sort of one, then we need to be able to deal with the different parts of ourselves as distinct as they are. So creating the various different gods and goddesses, if you go all the way back to sort of Greece and Rome and things like that, helped us to deal with different parts of our psyche. Mm-hmm. And, and his crusade was, you know, bring that back. So create those mythic, through mythic imagination, create these parts so that you can then have dialogue with that part of you. Um, and if there's anything broken or that needs to be fixed or attuned, you can deal with that aspect mm-hmm. of yourself, okay. which I quite liked. I quite like yeah, this idea. Yeah, th- there's a sort of corresponding way of doing that in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition with mm. the bodhisattvas. So you have a lot of different um, bodhisattvas that represent different kind of qualities, and those qualities are meant to be reflected in in you. So you know these kind of things about like anger and um, and fierceness and these kind of things are externalized so that we can understand how they're working in us. Yeah. So the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Did you catch the series um, The American Gods? No. Oh, you've got to, you've got to, well, depends on which way you like going, but either read the book or do both actually, read the book and watch the series. Probably read the book I would suggest anyone listening because I think some people find it 
hard to get into the series because it's so weird. Mm. Um, whereas the, the book takes you into that kind of world, but in a different kind of way. But essentially, just the basic plot of it is that the old gods, Odin and uh, gods from different traditions, not just Western traditions, so all the old gods, some that, that weren't destroyed have found ways to continue to live in the new world mm-hmm. in various different ways. But then all these new American gods, TV, the internet, so all these are right. gods in themselves, but they want to just completely destroy all the old gods. But the old gods, led by Odin, wants to take their place back in human society mm, again. Interesting. Um, so it's quite interesting to watch that, that play out. And it was interesting to see the... And if you think about what the, you know, your sort of Greek gods or Viking Norse gods played in humanities in the communities mm-hmm. it's interesting how the new gods these American gods the new gods what we've what they relate what they are <laughs> so okay. like I said like a television one was was one of the gods was uh, played by a, was a, she was a female god she was a goddess basically instead of some god she's a goddess um, and then there was the, the internet, and then there was uh, the world, Mr. World. So it was interesting. Um, and the, yeah, the battle that's upcoming. And it was yeah. interesting to see how, like Easter, how Easter found a way, the goddess of Easter, I can't remember what her name is, how she found a way to stay alive through the centuries and not die out because she latched herself on to and blended in with Christianity. So we got Easter and the Easter egg hunt and all that was her way of continuing to survive, um, hidden and tucked inside of a Christian tradition. Right. So it's pretty fascinating, but it reminds me of the stuff that you know Hillman, James Hillman is talking about as well in terms of this mythic imagination and creating these various different um, gods or goddesses so that and they represent different parts of your psyches in order to work with with those yeah I mean I I'm less interested in that to be honest in in my own sort of personal journey and I think that there's sort of different times in which something might come up for you and then suddenly that aspect becomes really more important to look at Mm. But I don't think that that's the sum total of um, of what we're you know what we're seeking out. I well, guess this, I guess that's 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 a, maybe the point of my question is what yeah. is it that we're seeking out? So why do we create one system and then we got another system and we got other systems? We got all these different systems for yeah. accessing, which is to me the big question mark. And if the question mark is uh, well, it's the unknowable thing, but then why are we seeking something that's unknowable? What is it? And you know, if you took it away. Could we still exist, I guess, is the question I would ask. Well, I mean, I would sort of... I was thinking about this and, and sort of wondering whether we should look at it from the opposite perspective, which is that there must be some... We, you could argue that there must be something in it because, of course, we could exist without it and all other animals do. So there must be something that we are attuned to. And, you know, I do think that we're starting with scientific stuff to realize how much we perceive that we are not necessarily aware that we're perceiving you know so I mean we've talked about this before my whole kind of thing about you know the science the the way that yoga thinks about body and energy and this kind of stuff and uh, you know so 
I suppose I am coming from a perspective where I'm a bit skeptical about the sort of reign of science and fact is the only way to kind of know and understand something. That's a new god that would be science is a new god because yeah, it, right. it doesn't have the answers either but yeah. it's, it's kind of what people have latched on so that's it, right it, it's no different from and it's not that and it's, yeah that. that's right it's not that it's wrong it's but that it, it's not a whole picture yeah. of anything and so I suppose that's what I'm saying is that something can be unknowable in one way of no, like our way of thinking that we know something is very limited now you know, by our perception of how science works. You know, that's how we've been taught at school. That's how we've been sort of taught to learn and know something. Mm. Whereas there's an experiential factor to all of this, which I assume, not knowing very much about Taoism, I assume that there's that in it. That's like, it is unknowable, but it is also knowable in a deeper sense, though it is unknowable. Do you see what I mean? That like, there's, there's something that you can kind of sink down into and there's, when you come back up, there's no words because mm. words are, you know, on a different plane. They're, they're in a realm which requires specificity and form yeah. and, you know, for things to be static the, and the defined. Tao is it becomes that's when it becomes this idea of a practice, mm. and the and so instead of saying okay, well I'm going to go to church on Sunday and and I kind of do it in these different distinct periods, something yeah. like Taoism or Zen is meant to be an all the time thing. There isn't a schedule. There I isn't suppose a, you would say that Christians are often encouraged to be that way, but maybe aren't. Yeah, but yes, but I think with Christianity, there's a um, it's the religious side of things that gets in the way. So if you look at some of the Christian mysticism, absolutely, mm. it mirrors having more of an Eastern practice. It becomes an all the time thing, um, and it's more of a way of life than a system of thought. Yeah. And the thing that you are attaining, so even even in the Christian mysticism tradition, you know there isn't this latch on to the religious aspect that there's a God and there's a heaven and a hell and you're going to go to this place whether you're good or bad. What they recognize in there is that there's forces and there's energy like you mentioned and all these things are contained in ourselves and part of our journey is understanding our relationship within that space mm-hmm. with all the different entities and energies and forces and and if you do it as a practice there becomes a point where you reach this which some would call enlightenment where you know without knowing and you're one with everything but the moment like what Zen would say the moment that you have that realization and you fall out of it as soon as you try and name it so as soon as you say oh I'm enlightened you're no longer enlightened, which is kind of paradoxical in a sense there. But the soon as you add words to it and say, I've attained it, then you end up actually mm. losing it. Jung had something to say about this. Oh, did he? Of course. Yeah. Now, he was big into alchemy and um, mythology and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah. The thing I found interesting reading this book 
what is it? it's just a sort of selection of his writings, is that he sort of talks about religion, and he uses Christianity as an example because it's the most pertinent hmm. example in the West. Um, but he talks about the sort of outward spiritual practice, and he relates that to what is conscious, what is in the forefront of our minds. And then there's the other side of things, which is really internal, which is he relates to sort of an unconsciousness, or, but not in the way that it, we're blind to it, but in a way that it has sort of transformed us inside so that that is the basis from which we act. So, you know, when he's... So, so basically he's talking about how if, if, a, if a religious tradition has really transformed you, it has touched inside, it's not just outside. And so you're not just giving faith to a God that's external. You are, I suppose to use Christian language, you're embodying the Holy Spirit within you. You've recognized that aspect within you. And that is the place from which all your actions come because it's transformed you. So, but he says that, you know, when this often doesn't happen and because, you know, it's all God outside and he doesn't, and, and we don't experience the God in our soul. And he says, Christian civilization has proved hollow to a terrifying degree. It is all veneer, but the inner man has remained untouched and therefore unchanged. Um, too few people have experienced the divine image as an innermost possession of their own souls. Christ only meets them from without, never from within their soul. And later he says, um, so long as religion is only faith and outward form, the religious function is not experienced in our own souls and so nothing has happened. Um, yeah, so I, I sort of thought that that's kind of an interesting development. And, and for me, like in my thinking about this question this week, this was sort of the end result because I started by thinking about where we came from in terms of myth. Um, and, uh, you know, I got, you know, because I was raised in the church, there was a point where I was really interested in the history of the church. And so, you know, I was doing a lot of reading about like, how did all the books in the Bible get formed to, or chosen? You know, they had this whole council. It was basically, we're going to decide that one's in, that one's out, that one's true, that one's not true, whatever. And I watched that film. Oh, I'm going to, Stigmata. Have you ever seen that yeah, film, Stigmata? That I was did. a great one. So I'm sure that that was also around that time. I was sort of thinking about all this stuff. Patricia Arquette, she's so good on it. Yeah. So, um, and... So I remembered reading a bit about how, um, you know, in Roman times, when Christianity was trying to get a foothold and, you know, people were going out and trying to convince these sort of polytheotic people to change over and believe in one God rather mm. than many, how did they do that? And even in high school, you know, I was so interested in this question because I feel like there was a real juncture where there was a whole bunch of gods, like you're saying. All, it's not even back to the Romans or Greeks. Way beyond way back, that. Yeah. Way back. And then suddenly, things switched to, like, most people being monothe you know, monotheistic. And 
I was so interested in how that whole process happened and why it happened. But basically, the best thing that I read about it was how sophisticated the polytheotic, the sort of Romans, were about understanding their religious, spiritual stories. And how when the Christian um, kind of missionaries came in and were like, you know, here, you know, there's this man that's called Jesus and he existed and he did all these miracles and he is the embodiment of God and you should all believe in him and then you go to heaven, blah, blah, blah. It was really hard for many Romans to understand that what they were talking about was like, this actually happened because they were used to interpreting stories in terms of their meaning, not in terms of fact. And when I read that that was actually, there's a a level, a higher level of sophistication to, um, to that kind of understanding than just, here, you have to believe that this is what happened, and then check, you'll go to heaven. Yeah. It, it's a sort of a different thing. Which is why I think it's interesting in Christianity itself, and that uh, if, you, if you look at the Christian mystic traditions, it's a whole other ballgame than the mm. normal religion, which the normal religion just makes me always think of the whole concept of religion being the opium of the masses type thing so how do you control a population and perhaps that's the way to do it but when you break away from that and look at some of the mystic traditions underneath Christianity then again it comes back to the same aspect of connecting with that thing that's unknowable um, after the break I'll talk about the modern alchemists okay, and cool. the sort of transformation aspect and what alchemy was really about The Havana Cafe Sessions podcast was created to carve out space for contemplation in the middle of our busy week. Inspired by the very ancient idea that wisdom and principles of conscious living can be found through conversation, Clay and I started meeting over coffee at the Havana Cafe. From these meetings, the Havana Cafe Sessions podcast was born, and as an independent podcast, it is supported by listeners like you. Here's how you can help us support the show and continue taking time to explore the big questions in our lives. First and most importantly, you can share the podcast with friends on Facebook, Instagram, or old school, like talking to your friends. Haha. <laughs> Leave a review for us on iTunes, or you can support the show for as little as a couple of pounds or dollars a month. That's less than the coffee you are drinking right now while listening to this show by going to havanacafesessions.co.uk and hitting that contribute button. Hope you're enjoying this episode, and thanks again for listening. So, like the modern alchemist, the guide to personal transformation, this is a book by Richard and Iona Miller. And a lot of people, when you think of alchemy, you think of either the precursor to chemist, or you think of turning lead into gold. And there are, you know, a history of people thinking that the alchemists had figured out how to literally turn lead into gold. And so you have a lot of seekers that kind of go that route. And the alchemists were very clever at hiding a lot of their doctrine. So it might be a book, and it may be two sentences in that book that actually have anything to do with this practice. And it was mainly to distract the people who were seeking literally to turn lead into gold. But the whole concept of it was the creation of connecting or enlightenment. At the end of it was, you know, you're 
how you are now embodied in the world and your transformation to kind of reconnect it with yourself, the mind, body, and spirit. And then if you look at that as the transformation from lead into gold, or if you look at it from a Zen tradition going from being But what's your, what's your sort of answer to that in terms of what, what you're looking for? Like what, like are, what am I looking yeah, for? Yeah. Um, I suppose there's a, on a couple of levels for me. One is this concept of being one with self and okay. this sort of peace and not seeking and it's just kind of kind of very Yoda-like. Like I like it when I get into that sort of stage. And then there's another aspect of me that wants to know well, why are humans doing this and why are we so blind to the fact that there's nothing um, but we put so much credence into these various different practices and living and I know that's a pretty dramatic statement to say there's nothing unless that's the existential beliefs in me that comes out that actually we're no, no different from that there is any, anything but we've yeah, created yeah. all these belief systems because we have to and I, and, and I meant to say earlier in the first half do we create these things and this is I think where existentialism kind of hints at because of our relationship to death. So most other animals don't have an awareness that one day I'm going to die. They just live and then they die. Whereas I don't know though, we say that. Okay, that, that's like a convenient part of the story, isn't it? That animals don't have a sense. But they're very instinctual and they see other other members of their pack or whatever die they all know the time. What death and they also is. know I don't I don't dispute that death is a, a force within them. So So what's the difference, the though? The difference if, if is the imagine. So we're the only creature that can imagine the future. Animals don't imagine the future. You hit it right. Instinct, I know death. So, so some would say the difference, the only difference between us and I mean, but, animals... But, but, you know, you have stories of elephants doing funerals and mourning and... You know, I'm just, but are they doing it out of instinct, as you just mentioned? Because that's what... That's the go in logic is they do that out of instinct. We don't know, though. They do that, well, if we think of it in the same way that we are animals, then I think we're extrapolating from that aspect. So there's but, what, this but I guess what I'm saying is, why do we always think that we're so exceptional? I don't think that we think that we're exceptional. So it's not a case of being exceptional. I think it's our blessing and our curse, as in it's our survival instinct. So one of the things that we've been embodied with, the thing that helps us to haven't survived because you think if you pitch us up against a lion or any you know bigger yeah, yeah, predators, yeah. No, that's I get all thing. that yeah so our thing that's helped us to survive is that ability to imagine something that's not there to imagine the future See, I, yeah i mean i guess i don't know i'm just gonna like play devil's advocate mm. for a minute because you know if you think about the way that pack animals hunt or something then there's sort of a plan and there's a group think and there's you yeah. know I think there's different levels of sort of what do you mean when you imagine the future and stuff and I guess what I'm saying in all of this is not like to have a whole other conversation about yeah. the intelligence of animals because like that's a whole different thing but rather that this isn't something like our urge to have some kind of spiritual practice in our lives or some kind of whatever we want to call it then maybe that isn't just coming from a we're the only ones that, 
you know, can imagine death and we're, so it freaks us out. And so we need to like create all this stuff to it's make us a, feel better about it. Maybe it is that every animal has its own way of connecting with the sort of sacred realm of life that we are all a part of and that in a way we are disconnected so much from it because we get so busy and we and we do have the capacity to completely distract ourselves and and also live in a completely unnatural way in terms of like we're completely out of sync with all of the natural rhythms of life and you know we've sort of constructed our life to be a certain way in a way that makes us almost it's that that kind of spiritual or sacred element doesn't naturally come in as much anymore. And so, you know, maybe it is not that we're just trying to make ourselves feel better, but that this comes as a natural part of life to reconnect with this greater force. And maybe animals are connected with it in their own way. Yeah. And, and we are also urged to connect with it in a human way, which is that we tend to think about it more. I think it's less that the, about imagining our own death. That's not what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. So I think animals are, are aware of death. Animals can plan and be sophisticated. It's, the, it's more of the awareness of something before it exists, that it's not there kind mm. of thing. So we can yeah. imagine a future that hasn't happened yet. But I just don't, I'm not a I'm yeah, not a big I'm, existentialist, so I'm just arguing that. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's not that. I mean, I, I mean, you know, there's plenty. As anything has two sides to it, and you can find yeah, enough yeah. facts to kind of yeah. to to sort of go with it. But from answering it from my point of view and why what I think of that is, we need that. If you knew, so I'm, I guess the question I throw out is if, if a person knew, people knew, that there isn't anything after death, like 100% no, like, like right now we don't know. So yeah. Right now we, we just don't know what happens. Mm-hmm. But if we knew at 100% certainty, mm-hmm. would you live your life differently? And if I get all sinister, if if I had a whole population of people to control, if I don't create something that distracts them from the fact that, um, how do I get them to conform, is I guess where I'm I'm going at, and and I create this other, and this other place to go, conform and be a part of that. I I think that the the premise is, is a false one though, because if, there was nothing and that was a certainty perhaps we wouldn't have the urge to have a spiritual life if that was you know if that was true Hmm. maybe that urge in us wouldn't be there maybe the fact that it exists that there is a spiritual element to life this is i mean we can now know i guess where i'm going from is how and this goes back to our certainty conversation we had last week so how do you know that what you're feeling or attaining or going after isn't because of the social conditioning that you've been... So you came into the world and someone said, introduced you to what spirituality as it was. And they created these conditions where there's lack and I'm missing something and 
I've got to find some wholeness. And then everything else around you is pointing to that. So how are we able to step outside of that to say, well, how much of that is because I've instinctually, in quotation marks, seek out this thing, or how much of that is part of the social condition of a human being to, that's been implanted in you? And so... I mean, I'm not really following the traditional path that I was <laughs> It doesn't was, matter the I path, that, but that was the spark. So someone introduced mm-hmm. a concept that there was something yeah, other I mean, than... I think the thing is, though, that almost everyone at some point, I feel like, has moments where what, what it is they go look for. So a lot of people, it's not a ostensibly spiritual thing. It's not like whatever, Christianity or Buddhism or, you know, whatever. It's poetry or it's art or it's music or it's um, nature or it's, you know, all these different kinds of things. It, sometimes it's sports. Sometimes people find that sort of experience of something well, that's when they're running. Ex- experience of so, what? What's the something? Experience of being human, fully integrated as a person and one without thinking think about it's the li- See, I don't past. think it's limited to that, but I mean, you know, that's just my interpretation mm. of it. And like, I will completely 100% say that we are mm-hmm. never going to know. I don't know. What is the something? You know. Um, so, and and I, I get you're right. It doesn't matter what the thing is. It's, you, know, you can do it through sports, you can do it through poetry, you can do it I think through that's whatever. A, that's just what I liked about your question is that, you know, when you when you kind of put it out there it was is religion or someone's spiritual practice just a metaphor for something that we know but we can't describe or define is it you know that we the only way that we can communicate or um, almost like make real a, a sort of very ephemeral fleeting experience that we aren't in all the time is to make it into a metaphor and to make it into a story or to make it into a ritual so that we can then practice it and hope that we're opening the door back into that place. And I think, I think probably that's true because, yeah. So so if there's an, so is this a, a, a flaw of nature that we aren't already integrated? Why is it that we have to seek this thing out as opposed to it just Yeah, I mean, we're making choices in our lives that mean that we don't reconnect with it. Reconnect. But some, you know, is that just, again, is that just illusionary talk? We reconnect with what? You are a human. There's, you don't have a choice but to be a human. You are it. So you're not, dis- in your mind, you might be disconnected. Well, but that's, really, maybe you're that's not. what it is. I mean, but that, I think that, well, that's and the, the, the Buddha story, isn't it? And the reconnection is that there is nothing. It, and you, once you get to that space and you realize that, whether you call it enlightenment or whatever, that all of that stuff is just an illusion. Yeah, is, but that's not, the, that's not enlightenment. That's not it, a realization that it's all nothing. Well, from a, it depends on what tradition you come from. Yeah, so from an existentialist point, that is enlightenment, that there's nothing. Yeah. If I go from the Zen bit, that... It just is. 
whatever you know there is no other thing there is I don't just think a, is. <laughs> I, I think that we should put down as a little like marker here yeah. <laughs> that we don't actually know from the Zen perspective what enlightenment is well no other than stuff that I've read or practice or we what don't have know. you what, and, and from a Zen practice point of view it would be yeah as soon as you think that you know you don't know and soon as you think it, it no I don't think that's right I think as soon as you try to put it into words, it becomes something that it's not. I think that you can know something because you've experienced it. How can you know something without putting it into words? Easy. Is it easy? Yeah. Okay. Uh, explain to me how it's easy to know something without putting it well, into words. Well, we're still working from a perspective of being like... In the like, sense that you've got to put it into words to say that you know it. Why do you have to? Well, that's what I'm saying to you. How do you know that you know it if you don't put it into words at some points in time? That doesn't make any sense to me. I feel like you can easily know something without being able to put it into words. Okay. So, I mean, you, can know you, you, something put, you put something it into, into words. words because you're trying to communicate it to somebody else, but the knowing but is first. Your, so what happens in your head then? You can have non-conceptual thoughts and experiences. Then how do you know that you're having those non-conceptual thoughts and experiences? Well, that's a different question. Well, no, because how do you know that you're having them? Well then, well, then we're in a perspective of like, how can you know that you know anything? How exactly. can you experience anything? <laughs> but that's a different question, Clay. Yeah. Do you know it? what I mean? Like that's well, I think it's related though, isn't it? How can you know the unknowable who says it's to? unknowable? Who says it's unknowable? Um, any piece of literature you pick no, up. No, <laughs> no. Pick up any Taoist text. In fact, no. if I can bring out the first. But we I have the book here somewhere. I know. I, I, I am going to like fight you on this one because actually when we read these texts, we are understanding them from our perspective. And when we have more experience in what they're talking about, we might understand what they're saying. These little phrases. Yeah, I think I do know what they're saying. So you're assuming that I haven't been to I that don't, place. I don't. I'm not, I'm not assuming that at all. <laughs> and I'm but, telling you, I've been there. Well, then, then it's not nothing. <laughs> it is nothing. That's what I'm trying to tell you. But you so from my point of view, you, you'll never believe me that it's nothing. And I, don't, and I think this is for everyone. And this is true for all spiritual aspects. No one can tell you. You have to make the journey and experience it for yourself. There's no way that I could tell you... You can't experience nothing. Well, that's what you're telling me, but I'm telling you that you can. And this is my point, that you have to... No one can tell you. You've got... So, you know, so we, we, we didn't talk about Joseph Campbell at all in here, but um, you've had this hero's journey, and you've got this... There's a point in the hero's journey where the hero has to go into the belly hmm. of the mm -hmm. well on his own. Yeah. So he's got to do that. No one can help him with that. Yeah. And that's the space I think that everyone has to, on their spiritual journey, they can have all the gurus and books yeah, and yeah, teachers and all that sort of stuff. But at some point, they've got to make the next part of that journey on their own. Mm -hmm. And then they make that journey on their own. They have their experience. Some of them come back and try and preach, teach, <laughs> and say. Mm -hmm. Others, from a Zen point of view, just keep chopping wood and carrying water, that thing. Yeah. Um, and then some of us have conversations like this <laughs> at the Havana Cafe. And in my head, knowing that there's nothing that I could actually say 
is only that people have to go and have the experience for themselves. Exactly, except that there's something in you. There's that nothing no in me. If you really could get inside okay, okay, my okay. head. Okay, but you have just said you've been to that place. Yeah. In which you experience sort of nothing or, you know. It's Literally in, nothing. In, yeah, okay. So from your own argument, how do you know that? I don't. Okay, but you've just said it. I know what I said. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so, could, so what I'm saying is... It could be an illusion. It could be an illusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, doubt. That, so, no doubt. No doubt. So but what I'm saying is... So we go back to our is, certainty. Nothing is certain. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, whether you can describe it accurately or not, you experienced it. And it's, I experienced something. You experienced whatever you experienced. Which is, yeah, something. Yeah. Could have been nothing. <laughs> How do I know for real? Okay. How do I even know that we're having this conversation? Uh, who knows? Yeah. I don't know. Please, please email and text us to make sure you can hear us and well, we're yeah, having they, this conversation. They think they're hearing us. So. Ghost in the machine we are. <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, I'm going to stay on the side of I feel there's something there. That's good. And I think that comforts people to feel I, that there's something there. Well, I don't mean that I think that there's something as in like... But this is what I think we have this. And that, I think the answer to my... If I was answering the question, I think that's why we have these religions, these spiritualities, these things like that, so that we can have the comfort that there is something. Yeah. I might not know what it is, but there's something because that keeps me going. Otherwise, what's the point of living? Yeah, no, I, I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Mm. I don't think that that's the sum total of of a spiritual life. Mm. Just and to the search we're for so smart. Why are we? If there was something, think about all the conversations and the books and the debates and the killing and the dying over this thing that that nobody can prove. I know it's so interesting. Which is just well, insane. You know, yeah, and you know. What I really, you know, I would, the and other I would thing I, all the time that we've been kicking around as human, if there was something, how don't come we don't, we can't, no one can say what any, well, some people say, yeah, I am certain. And they write books on it and they found religions and then they kill other people for not believing it, right? Because they're so certain, but nobody's really certain. But for some Cause reason, I, cause innately, I, we need I to suppose, feel like there's see, something. For me, I think this goes back to how we process information and how we have learned in the last couple of hundreds of years what we mean by being certain and what is true and that that dominates by a scientific understanding of things that can be proven by fact rather than something else. You know, there's all these kind of intuitive aspects to us. The idea that we can... You know, they, they did some kind of study about how far the electromagnetic pulse of our heart rate, of our heartbeat is, mm. beyond our body. So there's so many aspects of our perception that we've sort of not really tuned into. And we might be kind of influenced on a subconscious level by, you know, so you get a bad vibe from somebody, we say. But we don't really know how to explain that. And we don't have, it's not scientific, so often we dismiss it. 
So I feel like there's this whole, there's lots of realms of things that And don't just say scientific, really because it, science isn't the only one that will say those kind of things don't exist or that it's coming from some other place. But yeah, science... Science is its own religion and spirituality. We, I mean, but, but that's, that sort of bled into, you know, we have, like, economics and the whole quantitative everything. But, you know, I mean, it even goes back to Christianity and the idea that things had to have historically happened. I mean, so, you know, this history of Christianity I read, it says um, that the, if I can find it, the distinctive heart of Christianity lies in the historic facts of the gospel. So it was, you know, it, apart from Judaism that it comes out of, it's sort of newer at that point that things had to actually factually happen because, of course, you know, people were in, used to interpreting myth. Um, but even facts are s- suspect well, history. History. How do you, how do we know that what someone's told us has actually happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, we don't. We can't even remember accurately what happened yesterday. Yeah. So I suppose what I'm saying though is that that's in a way why it might be a path to take to sort of re-embrace the other aspect. And you know, this this for me in in the church. I think I was raised by somebody who was always aware of this more sophisticated way of interpreting the stories. So things were supposed, were, were really, you know, the sort of ideas of the resurrection or the ideas of the virgin birth or something were supposed to have a deeper truth to them that wasn't about the facts, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So I sort of grew up with that as an option. Because that depends on which branch of Christianity you are. Well, it wasn't, every, it wasn't in... But not every, not every branch of Christianity believes that the stories in the Bible are all fact. Some believe that they are stories that have other... Which branches believe that? More of your Protestant ones. There are some Not, sects, not yeah. any that I've heard well, of. there's some. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you ain't going to heaven. That's what mm, I've heard. Well, yeah. Well, that's, that's more <laughs> in your, all my years. That's more of your evangelistic ones, No, not yeah. at all. Not at all. I was raised Lutheran, which is just the first stepping stone yeah. Luther off of Catholicism. <laughs> so yeah, well, we're that, not evangelistic at all. Not, not all of them do. And I could pull some things out maybe Yeah. to put in the show notes to show. But yeah, so, mm. not, so there is... So part of the contention in some of the Christianity is whether the things are literal or whether they're stories. Yeah, metaphorical. Yeah. Yeah. But I that's mean, another thing that they fight and kill each other over. So yeah, anyway. yeah. <laughs> that's another story. No, yeah, but, I, you know, I think that it is sort of... So, you know, another thing that always um, has struck me is that because I'm sort of tuned into the Buddhist world now, the Dalai Lama has multiple times kind of said, don't become Buddhist. You know, like, hmm. we don't need a bunch of new Buddhists necessarily. You know, oh, listen, and, oh, and everybody, hey. and basically he was, he, his point is that there is a myriad of kinds of personalities of humans. We have different ways of connecting with spiritual kind of experiences. We need various kinds of stories, various kinds of ritualistic practices to suit different kinds of people. And I know this from, you know, my own teacher. There's a lot of yoga, like if I think about going to yoga training, there's a lot of teachers that I just do not 
jive with. Not because I think that they're not telling things that are true, but I just, they're not speaking my language, you know? Whereas, and I think if you, if you think about returning to valuing myth, and you think about reconceptualizing all of these different things, as, as basically that's how you're talking about it, then all these are different sort of stories and different pathways, some of which have become more stuck in the outer than the inner, but that, you know, hmm. there's a bunch of stories and you get to choose which language you want to... You get to choose the story. One of the things that was interesting to me, we probably need to wind this down, is, and, uh, and I just remember having this experience when I was down in Glastonbury, I think, but it's this concept of... And it made me go on a, a search, actually. It started a search. But one of it is, so for instance, you know, Christianity is a desert religion. Buddhism is from somewhere over in that sort of Eastern world. Um, but all these different cultures adopt these different religions. And what fascinated me about that is why did we usurp other people's religion? as opposed to going back to, and this sent me on my journey, to go back to wherever my roots were and reconnect with the mythology, the gods, the stories of my original ancestors. Mm -hmm. And is there some greater power in doing that? I don't know. For me, I just sort of feel like this is not the truth, but a pathway to a kind of spiritual practice and I, I feel like it speaks my language. I feel like when I listen to this stuff, I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me. And what does, and it, I can and find, what does it do you know, for you? What does look, it do I can, for you? You know, my grandmother was very, um, very but, spiritual person in the Christian faith and we could have a very, like, meaningful spiritual conversation and even though I am in my head coming from a slightly different place now, obviously being raised in the church, I'm also very clear about the language that everything in the Christian tradition is, is placed. So, you know, you talk about the, you know, Holy Spirit as opposed to the Buddha nature, you know, it's, it's sort of, you just, it's just words. It's just words for things that people have experienced. And I, and I suppose if you haven't experienced that or you don't feel a yearning for it or there, you feel like your experience when you try these things is empty, then you don't go looking for it. You're perfectly happy. But for me, I feel like I have experiences that mean something to me. I don't know. I mean, I guess that, then what is that? What does it mean to you? What does it do for you? Um... I think it's, like I said, it's a bit more than kind of reconnecting with myself. It's more about kind of reconnecting with the beyond me. Reconnecting with the beyond you. And then what does yeah. that do for you? I, I don't know. I don't have an answer make that I can put into good? words. Is it happy? Does uh, it make you feel centered? Does it make you feel nothing? Um, <laughs> I don't have words really. I don't, I don't, um, I wouldn't say that it makes me feel like, ooh, I'm so happy. And that's why I do it. Cause I can get happy having coffee here with you, you know, 
Not that I'm also not zen with you here at the yeah, Havana Cafe. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But um, I don't know. I feel like it reconnects me with something. You know, it's sort of like, you know, when you're thirsty and you drink water. I don't know. There's something. But I know what, you, what water does for me. It makes me not thirsty anymore. Right. But if you don't, if you, if, but if you don't have a word for thirsty, mm-hmm. what? How? How am I supposed to say it? You know, we don't have a word for spiritual thirst. What was asking for to say that, I was, uh, So what is, how does it make you feel then if I do that? Say, say it again? So what if, if I change, because I asked you, what does it do for you? What if I say, how does it make you feel? It makes me feel like there's part of me that yeah, I mean, like, I can't really say any, like, in this moment, I'm not finding words to say it. I feel like there is this aspect. I feel like there's times when I experience it. I feel like so there the, the is... So the times when you experience it, what is it, if you were describing it, the times when you experience it? Uh, so how do you know when you... Ex- so that if there's times when you experience it, so I'm just extrapolating from then there are times when you don't experience it. So yeah. how do you know when you're experiencing it? Um, I feel connected beyond me. Okay. You feel connected beyond you to some other thing. Yeah. Okay. I'll let you get away with that for now. <laughs> I don't feel nothing, but I don't feel something. Yeah. Just connected. Or you don't even feel connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Connected. I'll say connected. connected right. but, connected. Okay. Okay. I'll give you a word. I connected. Pl- plugged into the matrix. You re-plugged sure. into the matrix. See, I knew you were going to do that. You put it You put it into words and then you twist them. I'm not giving them to you. Connected. No, that's all right. Connected. Okay. Um, right. I think we need to stop now and have some more coffee. That's yeah. my spirituality is in a coffee cup. Yes. Sounds good. <laughs> This episode of the Havana Cafe Sessions podcast is brought to you by people just like you, wonderful listeners. So thank you very much. If you have a spare second and you want to click over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review or just some stars, that really helps us out a lot and helps other people find us who might enjoy the show. And if you would like to contribute to the show, then you can contribute as little as a pound an episode or less than a coffee an episode. Um, If you head over to HavanaCafeSessions.co.uk and click on the Contribute button, you'll find all kinds of different ways that you can help us out. Thank you so much if you have already contributed in some way or if you're thinking about contributing and really even just telling other people who you think might enjoy the podcast or um, joining in the conversation is very, very helpful. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Sarah Hunt, and on behalf of Clay Lowe, goodbye, and we'll see you next week.